This is The Guardian. The Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, may have already won the prize for 2023's Understatement of the Year. The experience for some patients and staff in emergency care has not been acceptable in recent weeks. Meanwhile, in the real world, the apparent collapse of the health service is causing untold misery and tragedy. Patients who need to be in intensive care or high dependency units are sitting in our A&E departments for hours waiting. It's just not safe by any shape of the imagination. Why has this awful crisis happened? And is there any way out? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former number 10 Chief of Staff under Theresa May and Conservative peer Gavin Barwell and The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, John. Just to start, we are going to have to talk about Prince Harry and his book, I'm afraid. Because <laughs> everyone else is. I have to say, and I've had this conversation, I think, with both of you in the past, I am of a Republican disposition and it sort of hardened my Republicanism. What a, what a strange, absurd, damaging, contorted institution the monarchy is. And it seems to me the strongest argument against it more than ever is what it does to the people right at the top of it. And this book is just replete with evidence of that. You know, Prince Harry having his head stuck in a deer carcass and being told he's got to shave his beard off to go to a wedding and tiaras being transported under armoured guard and on and on it goes. Gavin, you're laughing. <laughs> I'm sure you're still a, a, a... You are sort of a rational monarchist, aren't you? Is that right? That's your, that's your position. You feel that of all the, option, of all the options, whatever its imperfections, that's the best. But has it, has it sort of tilted your view one way or the other, all this hoo-ha? No, I mean, like, like, I think it's very, it's, it's sad. The rift that is in the is clearly there in that family. I, if I'm honest about it, John, I'm a bit bored with it. I mean, I don't think it's told me a lot I didn't already know, right? So Prince Happy feels Prince Harry feels he was hard done by. The royal family is clearly not going to respond to any of the specific allegations. To the extent public opinion has changed, it, it's probably shifted slightly against Harry. And I just think there's a lot more, much more important things going on in the country and the world. And I'm a bit bored with all the saturation coverage I'm honest. Gabby you've written about this haven't you? Twice for my sins yeah I mean I have to say I started out by thinking you know at the beginning Meghan and Harry were both raising you know issues with, with quite serious of quite serious public interest you know whether that was about you know attitudes to to race in the royal family or whether that was about the pretty dysfunctional and pretty grim relationship that has long been between the royals and the media all those were things that you know somebody needed to air and you kind of felt well it's good that they're out there now but by the time we're down to sort of Harry's frostbitten penis at a wedding or, you know, whether it's it, Prince William got a bigger bedroom than him, you slightly think, oh, God, give me strength. You know, it, I have moved from feeling quite team Meghan and Harry to feeling quite team put a sock in it now, really. I do kind of feel it might be time for everyone concerned to move on. Fat chance, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> anyway, us. Let, let us move on uh, and talk about the crisis in the NHS and, uh, for that matter, social care. Today we will be talking about the health service and the UK's equally troubled systems via which it looks after elderly adults and disabled people, for that matter, everything that falls under that umbrella term, social care. And we'll also be talking about what reforming those two things might look like and why it's so hard for politicians to even talk about that subject. Dennis Campbell is The Guardian's health policy editor. He's been watching and reporting on the NHS since 2007. I caught up with him earlier and asked him 
if the idea that the NHS is facing its worst ever crisis is true. It is true. The word crisis is routinely applied to the state of the NHS, but this this January is is the worst crisis the NHS has been in, as measured by the sheer amount of demand on all types of NHS care, particularly urgent and emergency care, driven by a, a massive surge in uh, winter illness, particularly flu, COVID, uh, strep A, etc. Uh, flu numbers they were having the the, the the most horrendous flu season for many many years. That's putting pressure on GPs, on ambulances, on A&Es, everything. Hospitals are getting absolutely backed up. Patients can't get out of the, the, the back of ambulances into A&E. A&E can't get their patients, once they're treated, into the actual hospital because hospitals are bunged up in England with 13,000 beds filled up with people who don't need to be there. Talking in really emotional terms, go on social media for five minutes and search any kind of doctor, nurse, paramedic. They all, they're all saying broadly the same sort of thing that this is for them the worst it's ever been. I'm in touch with, with NHS staff of all sorts all the time, nurses, doctors, and sometimes kind of chief executives of hospitals. Just going to read you a couple of very brief uh, emails I've had from people in the last couple of days. One says, I've been working in the NHS for over 10 years now, and I've never known it as bad. And it was all predicted by those on the ground many months ago. The other doctor said, and this is this is quite a hard one to read or to think about. For A&E staff across the country, a good shift nowadays is one where no one dies in the waiting room. I mean, that really leaves you speechless, doesn't it? As an illustration of the gravity of this. That's what, that might be the starkest thing I've heard so far, actually. What's different about this cycle of the NHS crisis, this kind of permacrisis that we now seem to have in the NHS, is that now you've got leading medical bodies, leading doctors, and also ambulance bosses telling us anytime they're asked that now the end result of all these delays for care, for, for ambulances, for A&E, for surgery, for all the rest of it, is that people are not just being harmed, but people are dying. We now have this uh, estimate from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, which is the body that represents A&E doctors across the UK, that between 300 and 500 people are dying every week because of the uh, aggregate of delays, the delays that people have accessing all forms of NHS urgent and emergency care. Okay, now you you ran through just then uh, the immediate reasons why the NHS is either has collapsed to all intents and purposes or is certainly approaching that point. In terms of underlying reasons, which gets us into the realm of politics and policy. Tell me what your sense is of that. And that's a story that goes back a long way. I know you've been um, you've been writing about these things with The Guardian since 2007, so you're the person to ask. John, uh, for many, many years, the NHS has not had the money it needs. It has developed a ever bigger shortage of staff, which is now affecting and in some cases crippling key areas of care. Actually, within a relatively recent time frame. 14, 15 years ago, 2008, the NHS was performing the best it had ever been in its history on the back of years of sustained investment in, in everything, its infrastructure and its workforce in particular. And over the last 10 or 11 years, particularly since about 2015, everything has got worse. The, uh, the financial situation, particularly the staffing situation, and therefore as an inevitable result, the waiting times, the delays for care uh, that patients now experience routinely. But it sounds like you don't buy the idea that because of an increasingly ageing population and the increased prevalence of chronic illness and so on, 
um, some great sort of systemic reorganization is demanded. Because you hear that a lot, right? That, uh, that the NHS has currently constructed just doesn't work anymore. You don't buy that. The current crisis is the product of years of underinvestment and lack of planning, particularly in the workforce front. If you don't give a, a vital public service the money it needs to do its job properly, and particularly if you uh, deny it the, uh, the bodies it needs, the people, the experts, the health professionals do its job properly, why would we surprise that it fails? The model is not broken. The way we deal with it, the way we fund it, the way we care for it, the way we nurture it is. But, but having said all that, there is a conversation to be had about the fact that, that the UK is so useless at preventive care, for example, that the, that the NHS all too often is a sort of emergency service, and that's, and that's fine if it works well and so on. But the problem that we've got is we don't stop people getting ill in the first place. That's, that's a legitimate conversation to have about so-called reform, isn't it? Definitely. There's a lot more in terms of kind of smoking, drinking, particularly obesity, frailty in older people. There's so much more. The NHS certainly could and should become much more of a preventative health service, definitely. What's your sense, this is my last question, of what's going to happen now? All the evidence suggests two things, John, will 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 happen. First of all, the uh, there is no reason to think that the NHS will start to get any better. So it will continue. Sadly, it's it's gradual process of of an equitable decline. It's increasing inability to do its job properly. And secondly, from everything I've heard from uh, the three prime ministers we've had in the last 12 months, particularly the current one, there's no reason to think that the, the, the really big thinking required is there. The one thing they could do as a kind of short-term fix would be simply to bung a lot of money at social care. They're doing a bit of that, but it's all the policies they're doing, everything they're doing, it's all the same limited, undramatic stuff uh, that we need to see, uh, particularly the, the, the workforce crisis challenge and social care sorted out ASAP, something that has been even more neglected for the last 10 or 12 years than the NHS itself, and that's saying something. It was a really, really sobering conversation. Gabby, um, I wonder what your sense is of this. I mean, in political terms, and those of sort of public opinion, something of huge significance, it seems to me, has happened here, which is that a very basic part of the social contract has fallen away. I mean, one's basic expectation as a citizen, perhaps as a taxpayer, is that if you get ill or if you're in an accident of some kind, you can depend on getting good medical treatment for it. And we're not there now. Um, the other reason I came to you first is I'm right in saying that you've had indirectly recent experience of all this, have you not? Yeah, I have. And and it's <laughs> you can read as much as you like or talk to as many doctors as you like or, you know, understand the theory of what's happening as much as you like. And there's nothing quite like seeing it happen to you in practice. I mean, I spent a bit of Christmas um, in A&E with a relative and it is exactly, you know, as everybody says, I think it was... You know, you wait hours and hours, you get triaged when you get through the door, fine. Then you wait hours and hours and hours for a doctor. Then from the point where they say, okay, you need to be in, you wait hours and hours and hours for a bed. I think it was 21 plus hours in total. The thing I was most struck by actually was seeing the effect on the staff was doctors coming in and out every five minutes saying, is this, you've not got, oh God, they're looking for literally anywhere to examine a patient in private, you know, literally a broom cupboard. Because you can't ask someone to strip off so that you can look at their rash that might be sepsis in the middle of a crowded waiting room. The machines were bleeping all the time, you know, the drips and the monitors that are attached to, to your patient, you know, they're just bleeping constantly. You think, does that mean something's gone badly wrong? And the nurses were saying, no, it's because everything's running off battery power. We don't have any plugs here to literally plug them into. You know, it's like makeshift field medicine really 
And the condition in those conditions, everyone's doing their absolute best and trying their level best. But you can see why, you know, you can frankly see why the risk of dying in A&E goes up the longer you wait for an actual hospital bed. Gavin, I wanted to ask you a question, um, a pretty obvious question, really, related to your time in government. One clear part of the story, as Dennis said, is that spending on the health service simply hasn't increased in line with need, uh, and particularly the share of the population in old age. Should you have acted on that? Yes. You know, I think, look, I mean, the May government did. One of the one of the things she did was this sort of long-term plan for the NHS, which included a step change in the funding for the service. I think if we're if Conservatives are being honest about it, you know, you you can you can apportion political blame as to whether Conservative government should have spent more or whether the difficult decisions there had to be taken from 2010 onwards are partly to blame for what went before. I don't think it's helpful to go through that argument, but I wouldn't for one moment question what Dennis said, which is that a significant chunk of the problem at the moment is a resourcing issue. I think there's more to it than that. Your question about public health sort of was was one that's worth exploring. Uh, and I and I also think I also think COVID is undeniably uh, a factor here. There are several things at work here, but if you're saying to me, John, if the simple question is, are the spending decisions yeah. that the government took post 2010 a factor in it? Yes. And it's one of the reasons why Theresa made that step change in funding in 2017. But that clearly wasn't enough to avoid the problems that we're seeing. I've been struck by how slow and clunky the government's response has been to all this. I suppose there's a sort of choreography of, of crisis that governments have to be good at. You know, you acknowledge emergencies when they happen and you have to make people believe that you are keen to get stuck in, you know. I think the government still seems to be in a state of denial, really. And that political failure, it seems to me, blurs into their approach to the strikes. It was always going to have to be a deal. And yet it seems to have taken a very, very long time for them to recognise that they're going to have to offer more than they more than they have so far. You know, there's that constant sense of being just a bit behind the curve where everyone else can see where this is going. I'm sorry, you know, you might not like it, but you are going to have to come up with some more money. And that and they've wasted a lot of time that they could have spent coming to grips, getting to grips with, okay, how, what money, where from, what do we want in return for it? You know, that process has just taken too long. And I think they've also been slightly paralyzed by the the, the thinking that, well, if we do it for the nurses, we'll be f- feel compelled to match it for every public sector profession that's out on strike. And I, I'm not sure about that. You know, I think there is a particular, there are differences between some of these strikes. There are differences in public sympathy. There are differences in Gavin is, is you know, visibly justific- nodding, justification yeah. for what they're asking for. What's going on here, Gavin? Why have they been pretty rubbish at, at responding to this? So I'd say three things. The first thing I want to do is controversially give a bit of credit to someone, which is Steve Barkley, the health secretary, right? And who, who probably isn't okay. number one at the top of the sort of list of NHS staff who they like at the moment. But <laughs> over the summer, over the summer stuff. he was trying to warn people that this problem was coming. If, you, if you've got pressure coming over winter, the time to deal with it in policy terms is the summer before to get the resources out there, to have a plan. And part of this is the consequence of the political chaos over the summer when we basically had a non-existent government and then the turmoil of the trust period. And Steve was trying over the summer to get people to pay attention to what was potentially coming down the line. Okay, but that leaves open the question of, of why, to go back to something I said earlier, even when it comes to this basic political choreography that any any competent government sort of engages in in response to a crisis it's not there why is that lacking it seems it seems almost odd to me that that's lacking 
So I think Gabby is absolutely right on the on the strike issue. They've got themselves into a ridiculous position that was clearly not going to be sustainable. It's been obvious to me from the start of this that the answer is going to lie in either a one-off payment of some kind or bringing forward next year's pay increase to January or a minimum cash amount so that the lowest paid nurses get larger increases than the pay. You know, there are ways of coming up with an answer which is not undermining completely the integrity of the pay review recommendation, but nonetheless giving the RCNs enough um, that you can reach a compromise. And I think if you listen to what the RCN is saying, they are willing to meet the government halfway. To me, the most frustrating thing of the whole thing is denying that there is a crisis. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. it's so damaging to politicians. This is something Theresa got right, I think, that when when something isn't going right, the most important thing is to acknowledge you've got a problem because you can't really begin a solution unless you understand the gravity of the issue. So let's talk about social care. Clearly, this crisis, if that's the right term, isn't just about the health service. There are reckoned to be 13,000 hospital beds or thereabouts occupied by people who could be discharged. But in terms of care outside hospital, there's just nowhere for them to go. And that obviously plays a massive part in all of this. Um, I've looked into this in quite great depth over the last couple of weeks. Um, last Thursday, I spoke to a doctor who works in acute medicine. That's the most sort of emergency kind of care once you're out of A&E. And she told me that 70% of the patients she sees are over 70. And she sees the same people coming back on the wards out again and then back in over and over again. And she says the single biggest factor in the chaos that is happening at a hospital is exactly this question of not being able to get people like that into social care settings where actually they might get get weller quicker you know she said to me that hospital is not necessarily the best place to get well as strange as that may sound certainly if you stay there for a long time now gavin you work for theresa may in an administration that had scars on its back from trying to change the social care system in england that goes back to the election of 2017 and the so-called dementia tax people may remember that that would have raised the asset threshold for paying for care to 100,000 but it would also have meant including the value of people's homes in the means testing for home-based care and obviously it triggered a huge backlash social care is a huge political minefield as much as the nhs isn't it if you go near it as a, as a government it tends to explode in your face so i think our politics is really bad at dealing with long-term problems that problems where if the government does the right thing then there's pain for voters short term and gain long term right there's no electoral dividend for that at the next election and the only issues where we've avoided that problem are ones where we've been able to generate a cross-party consensus. So on climate change, for example, the two parties really, since the original Climate Change Act, have broadly been in the same place. You know, Theresa was right in 2017 to put the issue front and centre. Her plan, the detail of the plan wasn't right. But the result of that election and what happened then meant the issue was based because Corbyn had a completely different view there was no possibility of getting to a consensus solution in that parliament. So we've basically made no progress at all. And all we're doing each year is throwing a bit more money at a broken system. And worse still, I suppose, because um, those plans for the so-called dementia tax were so sort of foregrounded in politics, the conversation about how people pay for social care goes back to the, the Dilnock Commission, which I think reported yep. in 2011, a long time ago now, right? Um, it seems that we can just about begin to have a conversation in, in how ca how care is paid for and the media can sort of cope with that. But meanwhile, what's fallen away, if it was arguably ever there at all, is any conversation about the state of care itself, Gabby. I mean, that's missing 
It's almost been reported as a revelation in the last couple of weeks, the state social care is in, and everybody should have known. They're very, very closely related, though. I mean, that's the trouble. I think, you know, the, the political conversation focuses on on mainly on costs because that's the politically salient issue. That's the thing people yeah. complain about elections. They say, I don't want to have to sell my house because of care. And Boris Johnson focused, you know, exclusively on that. Literally, his only interest in social care was how do we get people to not sell their houses? But actually, the cost of care, you know, has implications for for the quality of care. And the moment you've got a situation where care workers are paid appallingly, really badly, so they're leaving, of course they're leaving, how do you get higher salaries in social care? Only by funding local authorities such that they can purchase care at what it should actually cost. At the moment, councils are paying an absolute pittance for social care, and that translates into low salaries for the people working in it. Um, We mentioned a moment ago that arguably the key issue in the midst of any conversation about social care, which is how much care workers get paid. When Rishi Sunak was interviewed by Laura Kunzberg on BBC One on Sunday morning, there was an exchange about that, a very pointed, interesting exchange, I thought, and it went like this. Talking to people today and talking to people over the last couple of years, there's, there's a range of different things we can do to ensure people working in social care do feel valued. And part of that actually is giving them a sense of qualifications, professional training and development and a sense of career progression. These aren't things that have happened properly in the past, but because of the extra funding that we're putting in, all of those things are going to be delivered. And when I'm out and about talking to people, they do value those things. It's not just about how much people are paid. Would you, would you do a job as a care worker for £18,000 a year? Well, the, the job I'm doing is making would, a difference to job? the country as Prime Minister. That gets you to the nub of so many things that are in the news right now. I mean, it... it so much of what's happening in the UK is about the fact that people aren't being paid enough, Gabby. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not the, you know, it's not the sum total of the problems in social care. Of course it's not. But I don't think you're going to solve the problems in social care without tackling pay. And I think the same is true for recruitment in the NHS. The same is true for recruitment in education. You know, there's a lot of chickens coming home to roost here, which is 10 years of pay freezes and pay suppression that people have sort of kind of grumbled about but put up with for, to a certain point. And then you reach the point where actually, you know, if you can earn more from working in Aldi than you can earn as a nursing assistant, or you can earn as a social care worker, then, frankly, why wouldn't you? I was having a conversation with someone, Gavin, about two weeks ago, and I said probably the biggest domestic political story, aside from the NHS crisis, over the last two weeks, as strange as this may sound, was Sainsbury's putting up its basic hourly rate to £11 an hour. And, and what that represented as far as pressures on the public sector with regard to pay means. You know, that's, that's what's happening out there, is teaching assistants, care workers... Hospital porters are leaving to go and work for retailers because it's less onerous work and it pays better. Yeah, so there's, there's a wage issue, but there's also the overall kind of tightness of the labour market. I think it's important to put this in context that you know we, people are people are working in a labour market where it's incredibly tight. Right there, we've been in a period for the last few months, unprecedented in our history, where there are more job vacancies in the economy than there are unemployed people. So. People are people are finding it very easy to look at alternative jobs where they can be paid more. We're going to pause for a moment. When we come back, we will be talking about reforming not just the health service, but our attitude towards healthcare in general, social care, how we deliver it, public health, and everything, hopefully, that sits under this current crisis.
Welcome back. One of the things that strikes me is when the word reform is used in connection with the NHS, a lot of people recoil. But obviously, with a society that's now older and um, proportionally iller than it used to be, clearly we need to start thinking about change. Whether you use the word reform about that or not, I don't know. But this is a very, very relevant and increasingly urgent conversation. I suppose one of the reasons there is that allergic reaction to talking about reform is that under the Blair-Brown government, Uh, and the coalition government that followed it, really. Reform very often meant bringing in private companies to run services, which up to that point had been in the public sector. Um, And if you look into the history of that, we all know um, some of the most glaring parts of it. Virgin Care, for example, Richard Branson's company, doesn't exist anymore. It's since been bought out by another private firm. It ran lots and lots of services spanning the NHS and social care. Gavin, you may know as someone with connections, strong connections to Croydon, that Virgin Care ran the Urgent Care Centre at Croydon University Hospital from April 2012 under a £6 million contract. Um, I live not far from the city of Bath, and my daughter was in hospital in Bath and had a prescription when she came out that had a Virgin logo on it. The same thing, the same logos on Sex Pistols records. It was a very strange sort of sensation seeing that. Obviously, there are huge questions about whether that's right, as far as some people are concerned, including in a, in a moral sense. Just to get this one out of the way quickly... <laughs> Both of you. I just wonder where you where you fall on it, really. The idea that you can uh, outsource large swathes, or some at least, of the NHS, and somehow that may contain within it the chances of services improving. I've never been convinced. So I don't have any problem at all with using the private sector to help deal with the you know the need for services. Um, what would worry me is if you're sort of cherry picking particular bits that you're tendering out and you lose the kind of integrity. That's of a different thing. Yeah, that's a different some thing. some of those, you know, some of the synergies that are, that are important. So if, for example, you're saying you're trying to clear a, a waiting list and you've got the opportunity to use a private hospital to clear part of that backlog, I have no problem. I have no problem with that entirely. You know, there was a, there was a walk-in GP centre in Croydon that was, that I discovered after years of using it was run by a private company. It was NHS logoed on the door. That doesn't cause me a problem, but I think you do need to watch things being salami sliced so you lose that integration and synergy. That's really important. Where do you get the capacity to, to cut that backlog down? Where do you get, you know, you can't magic up beds and doctors out of nowhere. The only place that has spare capacity that you could get hold of is the private sector. So I do not have a problem actually with buying that in to provide treatment free at the point of need to people through the NHS. Because where else, you know, people object to that on ideological grounds. I just think, tell that to someone who's been waiting, you know, a year for a knee operation and can't walk and is in constant pain. What is your better plan? You don't have one. So that kind of temporary sort of use of the private sector absolutely fine turning that into something that the nhs can't live without so that the private sector becomes you know an integral part of the private yeah i'm less keen on that but i do think that we've it what annoys me is when we are unable to talk about reform except in the context of the private sector as if there was nothing anyone could possibly do that would make the nhs better and the only thing you could possibly do would make it worse i mean i think particularly for progressive parties that is mad when did progressive parties accept that there was no kind of progress that could possibly be made that seems completely self-defeating okay let's just get another one out the way uh which i think has been floated in scotland fairly recently the idea that wealthier patients should pay at least a, a proportion of the costs of some treatment, right? So that, that again, is something that, that when the NHS hits the buffers, one hears from time to time. Just to sort of test you both on that, on that one, your sort of instinctive feelings about that? It's a hard no from me, I have to say. You know, I think the bottom line has to be taxpayer-funded, free at the point of need. That is how the Gavin. NHS works. Um, yeah, I'm sceptical. 
Um, you know, if you could convince me that that was the only way to make the model work, I would be prepared to look at it. Um, but I think the, the danger with all of these things is that you end up, I mean, what, what are you defining as the wealthy? You end up putting extra costs on an already quite squeezed middle. Um, so my, my, I would have to exhaust all the other options for making the existing model work well. And we definitely haven't done that yet. Okay. Let's talk about prevention. When the NHS is in trouble, I can say this on the basis of, of years of uh, observation and experience in, in politics, politicians start talking about prevention, um, but it never really goes anywhere, right? It's a, one of the cliches that re recurs in a debate about the NHS. It seems to me that our NHS really, for years and years and years, has been firefighting. It's like if you're driving a car and there were no local garages, there's only the AA, right? You can't get your car serviced, but there is something there if your car breaks down completely and it won't move you know we only treat people when they're broken now if you look abroad there are there are countries um, that are much better at all this i'm not advocating cuba as a model of much at all certainly certainly not human rights and democracy and all that but i have been to cuba it so happens i made a film for Newsnight years and years ago a somewhat controversial film about the fact that the cuban health service because cuba is a pretty cash-strapped country, is really, really good at preventive healthcare. You know, I was reading something um, in the British Medical Journal earlier today which talks about the fact that in Cuba, emphasis is placed on preventive medicine, hygiene, nutrition, sports practice, and the fight against risk factors. What that means is you walk through the park in Cuba and there, were huge, there are huge groups of pensioners doing aerobics and one gets the sense that they've been told they've got to do aerobics or else. Uh, we don't like those kind of ideas in Britain, I suppose because there's an allergic reaction to do with the idea that that's all very statist and invasive and nanny statish and all of that. But we, we have to do this. There's a huge conversation, isn't there, Gavin, to be had? So I, I'm a massive advocate for this. I think some of my former colleagues, you know, if, if you're worried about the level of the tax burden in this country and then you're not prepared to do anything to tackle the, the rapidly growing demand on our healthcare system, it makes no sense to me at all. So we need to look at air quality. We need to look at the environmental standards of our housing. We need to look at diet, exercise, smoking, alcohol, obesity, all of these questions. You know, we've got a we've got a rapidly aging population. We're going to have lots of people living with multiple conditions that's going to drive further demand on the system. We have to look at the contribution we can all make as individuals to to move from what we have at the moment, which frankly is a national illness service, into a national health service. It probably does mean nagging people to go to the gym and to have better diets, right? And to quit smoking no, what it and to, and to exactly drink No, that's exactly what less. it doesn't mean. Nagging is incredibly unhelpful. I was really interested that West Treating had picked up on um, smoking and, you know, that being an area that you could go after. Now, because over the years, we've kind of picked away around the edges, smoking, ban on smoking in public places, changing advertising, that kind of thing. And it's lots of voluntary measures. It's kind of things that discourage you from smoking. So, you know, head teachers saying don't smoke at school, on school premises when you're picking up your kids. And they're all, they're not things that you can do by legislation, but they're things that fight you feel very hard to think, well, why, you know, am I really going to like die a death over my right to smoke in the playground over other people's children? Probably not. And the same is true with the obesity legislation. It's worked, you know, the sugar tax didn't work by telling people not to buy, you know, not to buy sweet things or forcing them to pay more money if they did. What the effect it had was on industry. The industry thought, okay, let's revise the recipes for our food so that we don't have so much sugar in it and we don't become liable for the sugar tax. It was a way of forcing the, the food industry to change, not forcing people to change. You are talking about the state, whether national or local, being more invasive, right? Necessarily, that, that's the way you're going to tackle it. The state has to do more. That's the case, isn't it, Gavin? We, we, we can't just sort of say, 
we can all just live whatever lifestyles we want and the state picks up the tab and cures us when we get ill. We all have to take some responsibility for tackling this issue. Now, I agree with Gabby, nagging probably evidentially is not a particularly way of get, good way of getting people to change behaviour and, and sort of nudging persuasion. It sounds like something to come up in a domestic. You're nagging me. No, I'm not. I'm nudging you. <laughs> but no, you You're make it easy for people to do the right thing, which is all what we all do in the domestic sector as well. That's what if I want my husband to do something, I make it easy for him to do the right thing rather than nagging. And it's exactly the same thing. It's, you know, you make it as easy as you possibly can for people to do the right thing rather than constantly telling them off for doing the wrong thing. Some of this actually goes back to pay, which is what we talked about earlier on, in the sense that having a sort of healthy and balanced diet is easier if you're if you're better paid. Anyway, let's just end on the politics of all this. Uh, this meltdown, collapse, crisis, whatever you call it, in the NHS with this cr- crisis in social care woven into it, it seems to me probably more than anything that we've seen over the last sort of year, a year and a half. It seems to me it really spells doom for the government. I don't, I don't see how they can sort of turn this round to their political advantage. This is very, very bad news for Rishi Sunak and his ministers, isn't it, Gavin? I think, if I can take a parallel from the economic situation, John, on in his first speech outside Number Ten, Sunak did something that interested me, which is he acknowledged that his predecessor had made things worse, and that part of his job was clearing up Liz Truss's mess. And that, I think, was a really important argument, because in order for him to say part of the problem with our economy is caused by Putin and Ukraine, he had to be honest that the Conservative Party had caused part of it as well. And I think there's a parallel with this issue, right, that he he can make the argument that some of the problems the NHS is facing are due to the pandemic and, and what we've been through, provided he acknowledges that the Conservative Party hasn't got everything right over the last 12 years and he has a coherent plan to do something about that. And that plan has to have both a short-term element dealing with the immediate crisis right now, but also a credible long-term plan to tackle some of the things that Dennis was talking about earlier on. And the one thing we haven't touched on today, which I feel very strongly about, you know, at the moment we spend a huge percentage of the NHS budget on hospitals. And what we need to do is get a lot of treatment and care out of hospitals to relieve the pressure on that bit of the system. And that's where I think the real reform agenda is. I mean, I think Sunak has got two big problems. One is that actually that this is a crisis in something that everyone understands, feels strongly about and most people use. You know, lots of us have. It's not like, you know, oh, there's a crisis in prisons, which most people wouldn't have direct experience of. You know, it's something that we all understand, use and are exposed to and, and know people who use it. But I think the other problem is this lack of time. You know, there is nothing. Frankly, we're almost into the long election campaign now. We're maybe 18 months for an election. There's no time to get legislation through. There's no time to do any big reform or change program. The only thing that time thing there's sort of any time to do is throw a bit of money at the problem. And money is what he doesn't have and isn't, I suppose, congenitally um, sort of keen to spend. So you have a situation where Sunak is really inheriting the sort of distilled problems of all his predecessors. He's the one holding the, you know, holding the parcel at the end of the, when the music stops, so to speak, with no time left to do anything about it, really. Right, on that note, we will bring things to a close. A really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you to you both um, for coming on, and we will see you again soon, I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, as I always say, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast, and even better, leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.